afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Good to be with you. President Woodrow Wilson is uh, certainly, by I think anyone's uh, evaluation, one of America's most consequential presidents. You might not like him. You might not like what he did. But the point is, uh, the world we live in today has much to do with the presidency of Woodrow Wilson. Uh, it's the presidency in which the federal income tax is introduced. It's the Federal Reserve is introduced. Of course, he led us uh, into the First World War after much agonizing. And he's also an especially articulate man as well. There's been a new uh, biography written uh, in reflection on the life of Woodrow Wilson. It's called The Moralist. Woodrow Wilson and the World He Made. Its author is Patricia O'Toole, the author of five books, uh, including uh, The Five of Hearts, which is an intimate portrait of Henry Adams and his circle of friends. It was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. She is uh, Patricia is a former professor in the School of Arts at Columbia University and a fellow of the Society of American Historians. Patricia, nice to make your acquaintance. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, I guess Sunday marked the anniversary of Woodrow Wilson's death. And uh, always a good time to think about a man's contribution to life. Would you agree that he, by just about everybody's uh, evaluation, would be considered uh, uh, one of the most consequential presidents we've had? I would, and I'm very glad that you led with that point, because um, I I think we need to get away from this idea of um, great presidents. I mean, it's a lot of fun every year when the polls come out <laughs> right. and see whose stock went up and whose stock went down. But the the you know there are presidents who were not great presidents um, who did things that matter for a very long time. For example. Um, uh, I don't think uh, George W. Bush shows up very high on these uh, tables of right. great presidents, but he is certainly a consequential president. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're still living with the uh, decisions he made to sure. go to war in Iraq and Afghanistan. So that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Now, you you make the—I mean, the book is called The Moralist, and so you've really focused in on— what it sounds to me is like the drive, the motive force uh, of uh, Wilson's life, and that is this idea of moral uh, force, moral regard, moral criteria. Tell me, what is your definition of moral force? What does that mean? Well, it was a phrase that he used all the time, and um, his his morality. People have noticed this about him before. And um, there was a biography a few years ago that kind of attributed all of this to his religious upbringing. Mm-hmm. His, his father was a Presbyterian minister, mm-hmm. and he had a grandfather who was, and other people in the family. And for me, that was part of the story as I uh, reread the the record. But his um, sense of American civic values, to me, seems equally important as his... Um, Christianity. He was not the kind of president who brought God into things. I mean, he would occasionally, you know, say things like, God bless America, but he was not claiming to be in touch with the mind of God or Mm -hmm. anything like Mm -hmm. that. Um, So, but he was a man who loved being on the high road, you know, loved being, uh, trying to figure out what is the right thing to do here, um, whatever the uh, challenge was. So um, that's why I called it The Moralist. And Mm -hmm. um, as the book goes along, 
um, readers come to see that um, it's morality is uh, it can be a great thing, like like a lot of things. It's a great thing up to a point, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then it's not like you want to switch over into immorality. But <laughs> you know, you if you think you're the only one who has the moral solution to something, or you think your solution is more moral than somebody else's then that's a kind of um, moral vanity in a way, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah. Um, so, you, you know, you start feeling superior to these other people. And uh, I think a lot of our um, dividedness now as a country is attributed to that. Yeah. You know, people just think the other side is plain wrong right. from a moral point of view. Right, right. Very true. Uh, in, in, in that's, let me ask you, Jimmy Carter struck me as a man who did not like, uh, at least at the beginning of his presidency, he did not like um, to do much way of compromise or collaboration. Is, is, is Wilson another one of those presidents that had no interest in mastering the arts of one-on-one personal <clears throat> uh, collaboration, persuasion, did he stick primarily to high oratory? You know, you get the message or you don't. Uh, he he did rely uh, quite heavily on oratory, and his presidency kind of divides in, in two. The first six years, he's very successful. Uh, you mentioned, as you set things up, um, all the economic reforms mm-hmm. that he did with the income tax and the Federal Reserve and so on. And for six years, he got everything he wanted from Congress, pretty much. And uh, the reason for that, he, I think he thought it was uh, largely attributed, uh, attributable to his oratory. But in fact, he had Democratic majorities in both the House and the Senate in those six <laughs> <Right>. years. <laughs> okay. So that was probably the main reason for his success. And he also had two really excellent handlers, one in the House and one in the Senate. So then comes... I mean, we're just a hundred years past this stuff, so it's it's kind of interesting. Then comes the you know the midterm election of uh, 1918, and he loses his majority in the Senate and his majority in the House. So you know, Congress has flipped against him, and he's a he's a minority president. You know, he doesn't mm. have them anymore, but he continues operating as if he you know just like he did before. So and he had not um, been a, a good kind of schmoozer. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't a good schmoozer. So he didn't like. Whereas Theodore Roosevelt, who was a complete extrovert, mm-hmm. if you were mm-hmm. in his office at eleven thirty in the morning, you were Senator Cresta from Michigan, and you wanted to ask him about something, you would talk about whatever it was. And even if he disagreed with you, he was likely to say, "Oh, Senator Cresta, can you come up and have?" lunch with Mrs. Roosevelt and the children and me. <laughs> Quentin was asking me about your dog just the other day. So you might go back to the Hill thinking um, you wanted to to help him. You know, he didn't give you what you wanted when you went to the White House, but he was a, such a nice guy right. and you wanted to help him. Wilson would never do anything like that. He wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't rude to people, but he was an introvert. Mm-hmm. He liked to think things through on his own. Uh, he also didn't like um, negotiation and uh, compromise. He thought that the president's job was to, you know, consider an issue from as many points of view as he could, and at some at, at some 
early moments, he would call in other people to make sure he understood their views properly. But then he thought it was the president's job to think of the right thing to do and uh, the right thing both from a moral point of view and from the interests of the country as a whole, and then um, uh, try to talk people into it, you know, to Mm -hmm. rely on persuasion. So that worked um, because he was good at it, but mainly I think it worked because he had these majorities in Congress. Yeah, it's it's amazing to me that a man as intelligent as he was wouldn't realize that his oratory could only be effective where he had some other people doing some of the work for him uh, out there. I mean, his dad was a Presbyterian pastor, uh, and I'm just curious, did they spend a lot of, t- you know, I mean, pastors are vendors of words. I, I've been a pastor myself, so I know, know a little bit about it. And you, 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 <clears throat> your stock and trade is uh, the pulpit, uh, especially if you're a Protestant pastor. Uh, and so you do get to think that everything rests upon the power of the word. Uh, did, did that, was he raised with that idea? He was raised with that idea. His father um, was very proud of his sermons. His father was considered a very great uh, preacher. And um, Wilson didn't want to follow his father into uh, the clergy, but um, he he got interested in politics as a young man, read about it a lot. And so that's where he wanted to make his mark. And the statesmen that he admired most were the ones who were great... uh, at oratory, mm-hmm. so um, the, the British ones in particular, um, and he, he was in love with the speeches of um, Daniel Webster and a number of um, English uh, prime ministers. But I don't think he ever really um, got into you know what else made them great statesmen. Right, right, know? right. Uh, the the kind of um, collaborations that you have to build and partnerships and negotiation and compromise and. Wilson didn't like negotiation because he thought, you know, when you have a negotiation with somebody, it ends in compromise, which means that it is therefore not as good and pure as yeah. the idea that you had, right? right? You had to give something up. Right, And right. He, he was not a good negotiator. Um, when he went to the Paris Peace Conference, the, the Europeans would say, we want X, and he would say, well, no, you can't have X. That's a terrible idea because, and they would say, <laughs> we want X. And this would go like four rounds. And then finally he would say, okay, you can have X. But he wouldn't ask for anything in return, oh. which is what most people would do, right? right? right. Yeah. So oh, he just wasn't, wasn't good at it. Uh, I want to come back to this question of his Presbyterian upbringing. Did he, would he have said, uh, again, given his high-mindedness and his kind of visionary approach to world affairs, would he have considered himself a, an instrument in the hand of God would he have seen America as a providential nation? Did that kind of language work with him? Um, in a sense, in a sense, it did. You know, but mostly he thought. Uh, I mean, he had the conventional American. I mean, for somebody, you know, there were isolationist people who didn't think this, but basically, um, you know, the view was that the American Revolution was a, a revolution, not just liberating um, this country from British rule, but um, that it was a huge innovation in uh, human thought. Right. You know, the the idea of having a democratic state. So 
there, there were people who came to believe as the United States came onto the world stage in the uh, very late 19th, early 20th centuries, that it was um, that we had to complete the mission. Yeah. You know that we'd been we'd achieved democracy, right. which you know was the best of all possible forms of government, according to you know this most powerful democratic nation in the world, and that we had an obligation to give this to the rest of the mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. So that was more of the point of view. Very good. My guest is Patricia O'Toole. We're going to be back in just a minute. We're looking at the uh, the life of uh, Woodrow Wilson. The book is called The Moralist. Woodrow Wilson and the World He Made. It's an outstanding read. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm Al Cresta. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Patricia O'Toole. She is author most recently of The Moralist, Woodrow Wilson and the World He Made. This question of uh, America's role in world affairs uh, the, the are we uh, do we follow uh, George Washington's uh, no entangling foreign alliances, or do we have an obligation as a great nation to extend liberty uh, to all the peoples of the earth? So we're inherently an internationalist uh, country. Did he? How did he resolve his interest in the League of Nations? in being an international leader with what must have been a common uh, idea that uh, we follow George Washington's uh, uh, farewell address and don't involve ourselves in any entangling foreign alliances? Well, um, there, everything hinges on what the meaning of entangling foreign alliances <laughs> is. And okay. there are people who read that as um, that you don't want to make a permanent alliance, that, that that's uh, the, a commonly accepted notion of what Washington meant. So you don't like go to France and England and say, okay, we're your buddies forever now. Right. Um, uh, but that you can make an alliance for um, short-term uh, purposes, like to um, rid the world of uh, atrocities or something, you know, mm-hmm. a coalition kind of thing. Um, but those are understood to be short-term things for a very uh, definite um, purpose. Um, and uh, certainly, you know, Wilson, I mean, I think we, however you end up feeling about him as a person and as a president, um, he was the first one with the League of Nations, this idea of having an international league yeah. to uh, prevent war had been around in various thinkers' heads, but he's the statesman who actually got the League of Nations up and running. And because the League of Nations uh, didn't, in the end, um, prevent World War II, um, some people have just written it off as like proof that Wilson was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um but it's uh, we're still, in a way, trying to get there, you know, to find international sure. mechanisms for preventing war. And um, certainly we're going right now through, uh, this isn't a, like a partisan kind of discussion at all, but um, after, uh, as World War II was in progress, once the United States entered that, Roosevelt, um, Franklin Roosevelt, was a great admirer of Wilson's. He worked um, as Assistant Secretary of the Navy for all eight years of Wilson's presidency. So he was thinking that when World War II ended, 
we needed a successor, that the world needed a successor organization to the League of Nations. But um, to figure out a way to do it that would avoid some of the pitfalls that the um, League of Nations had run into. And he had a team of very good advisors that he worked with. And one of the conclusions they came to is that the League of Nations had just been asked to do too many things. So um, they created a new um, uh, organization, the UN, and but they didn't put everything that had been in the League of Nations mm, okay. on um, the UN. So we get all these other organizations created at roughly the same time, things like NATO and the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, um, to do to you know to take care of specific tasks um, outside um, the UN. And uh, Wilson's idea was that the uh, United States would play a major role in the League of Nations, but of course the Senate, uh, the Republican Senate, and they saw the League of Nations back in 1919 as, wow, this really stretches the United States too far in the direction of other involvements, mm -hmm. and we don't want this. And Wilson wouldn't make any compromises on this. Um, so, so here's Wilson's big dream, and he, because he wouldn't compromise, he ends up sabotaging his dream. But the idea of um, you know some kind of organization to prevent war and to kind of uh, keep harmony in the world. Um, FDR was, you know, creating a new version, but he was definitely thinking of Wilson. And so I see it as, you know, Wilson's version was the first draft and FDR's yeah. was the second draft. Sure. Now we have the second draft falling apart. Right. You know, and it's a, I think it's a very big question of uh, uh, can, can the old order be saved? I don't think people think it can be anymore. Can we come up with something new? Some people have ideas about that. Mm -hmm. But we have a lot of, um, you know, a lot of strong leaders who want to just, you know, be, you know, America first. And yeah. um, we're not the only ones. This is a worldwide yeah. Uh, uh, trend. Yeah, this is uh, certainly this new populism that has been rising mm -hmm. in Europe and the United States is definitely concerned about uh, it, uh, our nations, our own borders, our boundaries. Uh, what about our own people? And uh, I, I assume that this eventually swings in one direction and then swings back. Um, but I did want to ask you about uh, his reluctance to go to war. Uh, was this visceral with him? He, was he a child of yes, the Civil War? Um, did he did he have that imprinted on him? That he, he did. He was um, he was a small boy in the Civil War. It started um, when he was about um, five, um, and but he he was living. He grew up in the South, so he actually saw it in his father's churchyard. Um, it was sometimes used as a stockade for Union prisoners, and inside the church. There was very often a corner of the church that was used as a, a hospital for um, wounded Confederate soldiers. And then his family moved, um, that was in Georgia, and then his family moved to South Carolina right after the war. And South Carolina was one of the last cities torched uh, by General Sherman. It was just a complete blackened wreck. Um, so he, you know, he saw that, he saw the damage of that, and he also saw men who had nothing to wear but their old Confederate uniforms, mm. and he saw slaves who had been freed but who had nowhere to go and nothing to do. So he saw the poverty and the destruction of war firsthand. 
and um, he just uh, did not want that to happen again. And in the beginning of um, World War One, um, he was among people who uh, saw it, World War One as as a kind of European quarrel. You know, this doesn't have anything to do with the United States. Sure. Mm-hmm. But but with the invention of the submarine. Um, uh, it became clearer and clearer as submarines got more powerful and could travel farther that um, the United States really was at risk. And the, when the, in February of 1917, when the Germans said it was no holds barred anymore, they were just going to shoot any ship they saw in the Atlantic. And there were American ships going back and forth carrying cargo. Um, you know, then there was kind of he had no choice but mm-hmm. it was an agonizing decision for him weren't we economically likely to favor uh england and france i mean they were bigger, stronger trading partners with us um, um there there was a strong trade with um germany as well uh before the war um and then um what happened is um there there was a little bit of um because we were a neutral we could in theory trade with anybody but it just ended up being that most people um who had any had money to lend or um contracts you, you know who um might be able to make tents or weapons or whatever for the Europeans that this is all, mostly happening on the east coast and the east coast was much more jingoistic okay. and the interior of the country. So it got very lopsided very quickly. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt thought Wilson was weak uh, because he wouldn't go to war even after there had been a loss of, what, 200 American lives in various um, <clears throat> uh, acts of uh, submarine warfare? Mm-hmm. Was, was Wilson uh, threatened by that? Um. He just, well, Wilson um, made a big mistake. He Right after the Lusitania was sunk in 1915, uh, Theodore Roosevelt certainly thought the United States should enter the war at okay. that point, and Wilson was determined not to. And one thing that was on his mind, Wilson's mind, was um, if we go to war now, we're completely unprepared. I mean, we had such a small army. It was the same size as the army of Montenegro. <laughs> <laughs> And the Navy had been building up, but it was nothing to write home about. You know, it really, really was pretty small. So Wilson thought the casualties would be so huge that um, the American people just would not understand. You know, so he thought some groundwork had to be laid. Um, But after the Lusitania was sunk and there was this big cry from Theodore Roosevelt and others about entering the war, um, Wilson was giving a speech. Uh, it was on a, uh, an occasion having nothing to do with the war, but he—that's when he said there is such a thing as being too proud to fight. Mm-hmm. And um, Roosevelt, who was very quick to call other people sissies and cowards, yeah. you know, he was on Wilson's case about that. And um, but what what Wilson—the argument he was trying to make about being neutral was that it was more than just not taking sides. He he thought it was a principled position, and he thought that if the United States stayed out of the war, it would be the country, the only big country, that was kind of unstained by war. Mm. Therefore, it could be the one to mediate the peace. Yeah. That was his hope, is gotcha. that someday he would be allowed to kind of be the mediator of the peace. What finally drove him to war? 
it was this submarine business and the Germans um, saying from now on we're just going to shoot at every ship um, because okay. that meant that um, U.S. ships could no longer uh, travel the Atlantic and, um, you know, that was uh, a threat. What was the Zimmerman uh, telegraph and, and why was that oh, significant? How much time do you have? <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, it... Uh, it was a telegram that was uh, sent by the Germans to their um, minister in Mexico saying, see what you can do to get the Mexicans and the Japanese, if you can, to kind of go into league together and make war on the United States wow. from Mexico, <laughs> you know, invade the United States from Mexico. And so that scared the daylights out of people. And um, so that was kind of used as the pretext for going to war, you okay. know, like here is a direct threat to the United States through, you know, we're going to get the Mexicans who were still having a revolution. Um, right. So uh, to invade the United States. And um, the promise was, and if you do this and we win the war, we'll give you back everything you lost in the Mexican-American War, which, of course, was most of the American West. <laughs> right. So, so um, it turns out that um, the Germans were bluffing, you know, mm -hmm. they were... <laughs> that they didn't even really mean this. Um, wow. But um, it, it became this thing, and, you know, it was sort wow. of one more, one more reason why uh, uh, the United States... Uh, it was, it was kind of handy in a way. Right. A what a misstep. Like, what? They're on our doorstep? They're trying to invade the United right, States, the Mexicans, right. and the Japanese to invade? Yeah. Can we hold it right there, Patricia? We'll be back in just a moment. My guest, Patricia O'Toole, the moralist, Woodrow Wilson, and the world he made. We'll be right back. Continue our conversation with Patricia O'Toole, uh, who's written r the most uh, compelling biography of Woodrow Wilson in recent years. It's called The Moralist, Woodrow Wilson and the World He Made. I, we have not talked about Woodrow Wilson and women. Um, it's largely thought this was a, a, a passion, even though the image of him is kind of this prim Presbyterian. Uh, we also know from his letters that he was a man who could articulate his passions. He was in some ways a romantic. Uh, he liked the company of women. What can you tell us about, uh, again, his his friendship with women? And uh, also, how does that square with his, and we haven't talked about race yet either, how does that square right. with his um, uh, opposition to the suffragist movement? Well, um, with women, um, he, he was a Victorian gentleman, you know, and he didn't think women should sully themselves with uh, involvement in politics. And okay. Theodore Roosevelt felt uh, much the same way. And both these men changed their opinions when they had to. Uh, so Roosevelt, when he made a rogue run for a third term as president in 1912, he realized that there were eight states that, I think it was eight um, at that point, who already had women voting. And it would be good as a third-party candidate to have them yeah, on your side. Sure. So he had a uh, Saul on the road to Damascus experience about this. Um, and Wilson, um, with suffrage, he believed in, he wasn't, the stand that he took was one that a lot of people took, um, uh, a lot of politicians who really didn't want to get into this very deeply. They, uh, they said, well, we believe in it, but um, not we don't want a constitutional amendment that would enable women all over the country to vote. We want this to happen state by state. 
you know, states' rights is still a very big thing. Uh, this applies to race as well. Um, so, you know, just going along state by state. But in 1918, it was clear that women had contributed a lot to the war effort. And Wilson uh, also realized that the, the drift was toward a constitutional amendment. So I think he wanted to be on the right side okay. of history. Okay. And he switched he switched sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, his after the death of his first wife, it's commonly thought that he was terribly lonely, and he quickly, fairly quickly, finds a new female uh, companion. Can tell us a little bit about her, and uh, she ends up really nursing him uh, to the end of his life, and in some ways uh, filling in for him after this his stroke as president. Yes. Uh... Her name was Edith Bowling Galt, um, but uh, she was Mrs. Galt. She had been married and uh, was widowed. She was about 16 years younger than he was, uh, very attractive, tall, beautiful dresser. Uh, and she was a friend of a family member of his who lived in the White House, a woman who had come as the first Mrs. Wilson social secretary mm-hmm. um, and stayed on at um, Wilson's request and lived in the White House. Um, and he did like female companionship, but he wasn't, it, it's not right to really think of him as a ladies' man. It's more like this. He um, he didn't like other powerful men. Oh. Um, so, I mean, I think this is part of his reluctance to, like, negotiate yeah, yeah. and, um, you know, to mix it up with other politicians he liked young men because they reminded him of his students at Princeton, um, and 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 he liked women because um, they hung on his every word. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> so um, he he doesn't. It's it's a kind of flaw in him uh, not to like women and not to like young women. I don't mean that's a flaw, but that part of the reason that he likes these two kinds of people is that they don't give him any guff. <laughs> okay. So so. Um, so so that's a big aspect of um, this story. Did they subvert uh, his, the Constitution uh, oh, to, after his stroke? Um, um, I'm sorry, what was that? Did, did they, did uh, Edith uh, subvert the Constitution after his stroke? Oh, this, um, so after he comes home from the Paris Peace Conference, he goes out on this big speaking tour across the country. He knows the... Republican Senate is against him. It's unlikely to um, ratify the treaty. It's looking like that. Uh, so rather than like work out a compromise to save things, he goes off to use his oratory one more time and see if he can, you know, get the American people behind this, and then the Senate will be have to be behind it. So um, he totally exhausts himself on this uh, trip and in the middle of it, collapses and comes home. And a few days after he comes home, he has this big stroke. So then there's the question, um, you kind of sympathize with the doctors of this period because they they don't have MRIs or right. CAT scans or anything. So they can't really see the extent of the damage in your brain. They're judging this all by like looking into your eyes and looking at, you know, what's happening with your body. But his entire left side was uh, paralyzed. Um, and um, there was a thought um, that he should resign. But according to Mrs. Wilson, one of his doctors, a, a neurologist who was brought in, opposed this, saying, 
oh, if you make him do that, he won't have any reason to live, and his recovery is likely to suffer on mm. account of that. So, like, you should be encouraging him and figuring out a way to make this work. Well, basically, there was the big cover, biggest cover-up there had ever been to that point um, in the White House, where uh, Mrs. Wilson and uh, Wilson's doctor, a guy named Dr. Grayson, were uh, basically pretending that everything was all right. And um, this was quite hard on the cabinet. You know, it's yeah. just after the war. A lot of economic changes had been made during the war. You know, they nationalized the railroads and the telegraphs and other things. Things had to be, you know, undone and uh, gotten back on a peacetime footing, and Wilson was just not available for this. So cabinet members were told, if you have something you need the president to decide, frame the question in a way that can be answered yes or no, and then send it up to the private quarters of the White House. And so that's that's what happened. And then it was Mrs. Wilson's job to pick the time to present that question to the president. So if he was having a bad day, she didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it slowed everything way down. And one reason he didn't want to resign was that his vice president, you know, the vice president is the president of the Senate, mm-hmm. and he had already said that he would be willing to make the compromises that the, the Republicans wanted in order to ratify the peace treaty, and ratifying the peace treaty is the thing that would enable the United States to join the League of Nations. Um, and Wilson was just bound and determined not to hand over the reins to somebody who favored compromise. Mm, okay. So um, it, this should not have happened. Um, Wilson should have had to resign. Yeah. Um, but there wasn't anything on the books for what to do um, in this situation. Right. And um, you've got uh, the doctor and the wife, uh, plus the guy who was the president's secretary, which would today be the equivalent of the chief of staff. They're all carrying on this big uh, charade. Wow. One last question for you. He's known as a progressive and yet his uh, reputation has diminished uh, recently because of all the discussion about his racism, and not just towards African-Americans, but towards, uh, sounds like, non-European whites in general. Yeah. How did he make sense of that? Well, um, you can't really uh, make sense of it. You know, it's just kind of you have to accept the, you don't have to approve of it, but, you, it, you know, it, it's it's a contradiction. Yeah. A lot of the whole progressive era, it's very progressive if you're a white person and very progressive if you're a white male person mm-hmm. in particular. Mm-hmm. But, you know, women are left out of things and um, non-whites are left out of things. And um, Wilson's big um, act in this regard was to uh, segregate the civil service, which decades before had been segregated, but it got kind of unsegregated over time. And it was actually a great place for African-Americans in particular to have jobs in Washington. It was kind of a way into the middle class for them. And um, he wanted to get the uh, Federal Reserve legislation passed. And um, the Southerners in Congress, who were always very, you know, always keeping an eye out for anything that's kind of a threat to white supremacy or was threatened to end segregation, um, they saw that if the Federal Reserve came into being, that that was um, going to extend uh, federal authority 
over um, business activity, uh, you know, it's, it's a real blow to states' rights. In other words, is all, all of a sudden the, the federal government is going to be in charge of the economy mm-hmm. in a big way. Mm-hmm. So um, they first opposed it, but they were willing to vote for it um, in exchange for um, Wilson segregating the civil service. So this was just the price that he had to pay um, to do this. And people who had supported him uh, in his first run for president, um, white liberals and uh, black uh, leaders, um, clergymen and leaders of black organizations, um, uh, complained uh, justifiably and bitterly about this. And Wilson could not figure out what to do about it. He it's interesting. He's somebody who, when he had a problem he couldn't solve, if it was a really serious problem, he often got sick and would just have to go to bed for days. He had wow. um, a very um, overactive uh, digestive system. You know, it'd be, it would be as if he had the flu for several days. Um, and this was one of those problems that uh, affected him in that way. Um, but he couldn't think. He finally said to some delegation of African-Americans who came to see him that, you know, this is not going to change until white Southern politicians need black votes. And I mean, that turned out to be the case and we had to wait. So Wilson gets um, blamed for this, this uh, segregation. And I mean, it's, it's his fault, certainly, but he's not the only president who behaved that way. Yeah, that's right. It went all, you know, goes, all through the New Deal, there are lots of things that you know that the rest of us got sure. from the New Deal that uh, blacks didn't get. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not till we get to Lyndon Johnson that you get any major change in this pattern. Was he also hostile to Jews and Catholics? No, oddly enough, um, when he was a young man, he was hostile to Catholics, and that was kind of just a. Uh, reflexive, you know, 19th century prejudice that a lot of people had. But he was the first um, president to appoint um, a Jew to the Supreme Court, uh, Brandeis, Mm -hmm. and he relied during the war um, quite a lot on the advice of Bernard Baruch, the financier from New York, um, and sent him on uh, special errands to negotiate things that other people wouldn't be able to negotiate because... um, they didn't have the connections that Baruch had. Right. So he was not anti-Semitic. Patricia, thank you. I wish we had more time. This was fantastic. Thank you. And I love the book. Oh, well, thank you so much. And it was a great interview. Thank you, Al. Thank you. Patricia O'Toole, it's called The Moralist Woodrow Wilson and the World He Made.